This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. So last week we started a new series called Discover Joy. We are walking through Paul's great letter to the church at Philippi, letter to the the Philippians, and it is an epistle of joy. Philippians uh, contains in four short chapters 16 references to the, the Greek form of joy or rejoicing. Um, and so it is a joy that transcends circumstances, as we'll see in our text today. So let's look today um, at chapter 1 and verse 27 and we're going to read through chapter 2 and verse 18 of Philippians. If you would find that in your copy of God's, God's Word, I'm going to be reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard uh, Bible. If you have an ESV or an NIV, very similar. All three of those translations are quite similar. Um, you'll be able to follow along uh, well. Philippians 1, and let's begin with verse 27. We're talking today about walking together. Philippians, like most of Paul's letters, is written to a church. And so it is about walking together as a church family. Let's begin with Philippians 1.27. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any, any way by your opponents. This is a sign of, their, of, of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for him, since you were engaged in the same struggle that you, you saw I had, and now hear that I have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves." Everyone should look not only to his not should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Father, we thank you for this joy that transcends circumstances. Just knowing that the Apostle Paul was in, in prison for the gospel as he writes this letter, and yet his heart is filled with gladness, thanksgiving, and, and, and joy um, because it's something that goes beyond circumstances because it was in the Lord. And, and, and Father, whatever circumstance that we may find ourselves in today, Lord, I know that in a, a, a size, this, this crowd and, and many others who are watching today or maybe watching at some point in the future, um, that there is, there's pain, uh, there are burdens that are being carried, there are challenges and difficulties that people are facing in their lives. But Lord, we, we pray that today you would give us a vision, a fresh vision of, of who Jesus is and that, that because our Savior is, is crucified for sinners like us, risen from the dead, ascended, reigning, exalted, and returning, that it trumps everything else in life and that we can have a joy, we can discover a joy that transcends the immediate circumstances of our lives. And so, Lord, speak to us now in the power of your Spirit, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory that was written in 1678 by, by John Bunyan, who was a Baptist preacher. And in Pilgrim's Progress, it follows the course of a character named Christian as he walks throughout the different trials and, and tribulations of this life on his way to the celestial city. Well, well of course, Bunyan's character in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, stands for all of us, right? That's, the, that's all of our stories as believers, as we, we walk through a fallen world with many, many painful trials and tribulations and bends in the road along the way, we're, we're on our way to glory. And so that character, Christian, stands for all of us. <clears throat> Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, another Christian uh, writer, has some similarities to Pilgrim's Progress because the characters in Lord of the Rings are, are also on a journey uh, they are making their way through many, many trials and tribulations, but it all culminates at the end when everything sad is made untrue with, with the return of the king and, and things that are, are broken are made right and the world is, is restored in a glorious condition. Well, both of those works of literature have something to say about the Christian life. 
Pilgrim's Progress has something to say because we, we come to Christ one by one as, in, as individuals, right? We can't, we can't come to Christ by proxy on the faith of our parents or anything like that. We have to come one by one and ultimately each one of us is going to stand before God but, but, but also as we walk through this life we're doing that together. In, in Lord of the Rings, there's a fellowship, right? The first book in Lord of the Rings is the fellowship of the ring. And last week, we saw in verse 5 that word fellowship. We talked about the partnership of the gospel that we share. And that word koinonia there is, is the word fellowship. And so as we walk through life, we're, we're doing that together with other believers in our local church. We're, we're, we're walking together. And, and so Paul in our passage today is telling us about how to do that. How, how, do we, how do we walk together as believers, right? The Christian life is not a, is not a lone ranger project. We're, we're doing this together. What are some principles for, for our walk together in Christ? The first, first one that we see is this, walking worthy, walking worthy. Let's take a look at chapter 1 and, and verse 27. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul refers to us here as believers, as citizens of heaven, uh, for some reason, it's not, that word citizens is not there in the ESV or the NIV, um, but it's, it's there. It's there in Greek. Um, and, the, and the CSB has this right here. Um, Paul refers to us here as citizens of heaven, and he uses that same terminology another time in Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 20. Turn to chapter 3, and let's look at verse 20 together. Paul says there, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So twice in this letter, he refers to believers as citizens of heaven, or says our citizenship is in heaven. Now, there is a reason why that term would resonate with people who lived in the city of Philippi. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was a place where people were incredibly proud of their Roman citizenship. In 42 BC, two great battles took place on the plains right outside of the city of Philippi. Those battles were between the, the forces that were loyal to the assassins of Julius Caesar, Brutus, and Cassius, and those who were loyal to, uh, to, the, to the emperor, uh, the forces that were under the, the command of Octavian and Mark Antony, and the forces that were loyal to the emperor, uh, loyal to, uh, to Mark Antony and to Octavian, an Octavian who later became Caesar Augustus, won the battle, and so when he became Caesar, Octavian, in tribute to the great victory that had been won right outside of the city of Philippi, he made the city of Philippi a Roman colony and settled it with many of the veterans from the Roman army. And so Philippi was an incredibly, it was incredibly Roman. 
uh, they were incredibly proud of their Roman citizenship. But Paul says to them here in, in verse 27 that, that as believers, you are now what? Citizens of heaven. As Christians, we have a higher citizenship. That, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to love our country. Doesn't mean that it's wrong to be patriotic. It does mean that our ultimate love and loyalty is not to the state, but to Jesus. And, and, and so as citizens of heaven, we need to understand that we are living life in a world that is fallen, where most people around us are not citizens of heaven. They're very much all about this world. But Paul says as citizens of heaven, where your ultimately, ultimate love and loyalty is to Jesus, you are to live differently. And churches are to live differently because if we are citizens of heaven, then every local church is like an embassy of heaven. We could have on our sign outside of our church, embassy of the kingdom of heaven, and it would be accurate. That is what local churches are. You know, if you go around the world to major cities, often what you'll see, you'll find an American embassy. And those American embassies, they're American territory. They have American soldiers that are, that are guarding those embassies. The, the embassy staff will be headed by an American ambassador who represents our country to that country. So what does the Bible, how does the Bible refer to us in 2 Corinthians 5.20? It says, therefore we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. We are citizens of heaven. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ in foreign territory, which is what this world is to us. We are aliens and strangers and exiles here. And so we are representing the kingdom of heaven. We are representing Christ. We are his ambassadors. And so what that means is that every day when we wake up, we need to understand that whatever happens that day and whatever conversations that we're in that day, whatever, whoever we encounter that day, whatever people God brings across our path that day, Whatever situations that you're in, as a believer, you bear the name of Christ and you are representing Christ as his ambassador. And, and we want to represent him well, right? And we want to represent him well as a church. That's what he means here in verse 27 when he talks about, about uh, living life worthy uh, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It doesn't mean that, that, we, that, we are, that we were worthy of being saved. Salvation came to us purely by grace. But, but it means that as we live our lives, we need to understand we are bearing the name of Jesus. We represent him. And we want to represent him in a, in a worthy kind of a, of a way both as individual Christians and, and, and corporately as, uh, as a church because unbelievers are watching us. Unbelievers are watching your life. They, they watch, they, they, they're watching the lives of local churches like, like ours. And in the church at Philippi, 
there was an issue going on, and we're going to see it in chapter 4 and verse 2. Turn to chapter 4 and verse 2, and let's look there. Paul says, I urge Euodia, and I urge Syntyche, these are two, two women in the church at Philippi. He says, I urge, you, I urge Euodia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. See, the, these, these two individuals were, were squabbling arguing with, with one another. And it was damaging the witness of the church in Philippi. And so he says, listen, you, want to, you, re, need, you need to understand, unbelievers are watching you. They're watching the way that you conduct yourselves. You want to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that means, and that brings us to the second point, walking in unity. Walking in, in, in unity. So again, let's look at verse 20. 27. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, and whether I come and see you or I'm I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are doing what? Standing firm in how? One spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. He wants them to walk in unity right now. What he's going to do for the remainder of this passage is give us some keys, some uh, principles for walking in unity. Here's the first one. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. If you want to follow along and take notes, uh, the outline is on the the back of your, your bulletin. Keep the main thing the main thing. Let's look at verse 27 again. Look at this last phrase in verse verse 27. He says that we are to be contending together for the faith of the gospel. Contending together for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. As Jude 3 puts it, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The kinds of things that we just said together in the Apostles' Creed. Right, those are things that, that, that's the faith of the gospel that binds us together as believers. We cannot compromise on those things. Those things bring us together. There are lots of, you know, secondary peripheral issues that Bible-believing Christians can have different views on, and that's fine. But when it comes to the faith of the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, right? Got to be together on those things, contending together for the faith of the gospel, Right, So keeping the main thing the main thing, not being sidetracked by you know, peripheral, secondary types of issues, and not being sidetracked by you know, our own preferences on this or that, stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. Again, look at chapter 2 and verse 2. <clears throat> he says, make my joy complete. By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. One purpose. Knowing Christ and making him known. The faith of the gospel. Okay? So keep the main thing the main thing. Second, be humble. Be humble. Humility is the oil that reduces friction in relationships. I don't care whether it's in in marriage or on a team at work or in a church or whatever. Humility is the oil that reduces friction 
in relationships. If you're humble, if you've got a humble spirit, you can work your way through almost anything. And, and so it, to have unity, we need humility. Look at what he says in chapter 2 and, and verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Wow, a lot to unpack here. Okay, so first of all, he talks about selfish ambition. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says this about selfish ambition. Selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness, where self-interest and self-aggrandizement at the expense of others primarily dictate values and behavior. In other words, we live in a world where people are out for what? Themselves, right? We live in a world where people are out for themselves, but as believers, he says, you are to be out for others first, putting others above your, yourselves. And then he talks about conceit here in, in verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Um, <clears throat> literally, that Greek word means empty glory. Empty glory. You see, in our, in our sinful nature, we tend to think too highly of ourselves. But in reality, when we do that, what we're doing is that we're, we're getting puffed up over nothing. Empty glory. <clears throat> Winston Churchill is one of my favorite historical figures, but uh, Churchill was known for his funny, witty uh, quips about people. And, uh, and one time, Churchill was just on a rant about Clement Attlee, who was the leader of the Labor Party in Great Britain at the time. And so uh, Churchill was just going on and on and ranting and raving about Clement Attlee. And the person he was talking to says, but Prime Minister, wouldn't you agree that Mr. Attlee is a humble man? And without missing a beat, Churchill said, and he has much to be humble about. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is that we all have much to be humble about. Uh, there is one who has true glory, <clears throat> and it's not any of us. And so we can puff ourselves up over nothing with empty glory and, 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 and conceit. He says we're to turn away from that. And then what? Verse, verse 3 again. He says, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Now, that does not mean that we compare ourselves to others, either favorably or not favorably. Comparing yourself to other people is just a bad deal, always. Just not good, whether you think you're, you know, up here or down here, you know. It does, it, comparing yourselves to other people, just, just not a good thing to do. It's not talking about that. What he's saying here, when he, when he says in humility, consider others as more important than than yourselves um, is, is that it, 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 it means that you are putting the needs of others above your self-interest, which is a, a radical countercultural way to live. Look at verse 4. He says, everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. And so in a, in a, in a selfie world where it's very narcissistic, and people are navel-gazing and looking at themselves, we are called to be people who are looking up 
and looking out. Up to God in faith and out to our neighbor in love. Now, who is the model, ultimately, of humility? It is Christ. And so what does he say here in verse 5? Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Now, what we see uh, in verses 6 through 11 was probably an early Christian creed or maybe a song. It could have been put to song. It was certainly something that they were familiar with. It was, it was something that these early believers had memorized. And it sums up the work of Christ all the way from glory to glory. All the way from the glory that he enjoyed from all eternity in heaven to the, the glory of when he returns and makes all things new. We see it from glory to glory in verses 6 through 11. But Paul places this here. He places these verses here because he's, he's, he's seeking to, 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 to help us grow in humility. He's trying to help us grow in, in, in humility, and we do that by looking to the attitude of, of Christ. First of all, grow in humility by looking to Christ's incarnation. Grow in, Christ, grow, grow in humility by looking to Christ's incarnation. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. He says of Christ who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man. Now verse 6 begins with the glory that Christ enjoyed from before the foundation of the world, from all eternity as the second person of the Trinity. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He did not have a beginning. He was there in the beginning. As John 1 in verses 1 through 3 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was God, and the, and, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. But out of love. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became man. And verse 7 here puts this in striking terms. It says, he emptied himself. That does not mean that he ceased to be God. He was 100% God and 100% man. But, but Christ, as he, when he came as a man, he empties himself of the glory that he had enjoyed for all eternity. Why? To come and rescue us. Brian Chapel illustrates this, I think, in a powerful way. There are some villages in, in Africa where the chief of the village is always the strongest man in the village, the, the strongest man physically. And so one time, 
on the mission field, there was a, there was a man who fell down a, a, a well shaft. And so he's down at the bottom of this well. And in order for him to be rescued, somebody's going to have to go down there and get him and, and, and crawl down on slits on the side of the well and then crawl back up with, with this person on top of them. Well, in this particular village, there was only, there was only one person who was strong enough to, to make that rescue, and that would be, that was the chief. And so the chief of this village took off his elaborate headdress that he wore and, and took off the, 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 the special robes that he wore as their chief, stripped, stripped down, uh, took off his headdress, and then lowered himself down into, into the darkness of that well and rescued this man, put him, on his, put him on his shoulders and then crawled back up to the top bearing the man that he had, he had rescued. Well, the chief did not cease to be the chief when he did that, when he, when he lowered himself down and made that rescue. Jesus did not cease to be God when he, when he came down, when he came to this earth to rescue you and me, when he emptied himself in the incarnation. So we grow in humility by looking at Christ's incarnation. Second, we can grow in humility by looking to Christ's crucifixion. Look at verse eight. It says, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. How can we look at the cross and possibly be puffed up with pride? We cannot. And so we should look to the cross. Look to the cross often. That is why we preach Christ here at our church. We preach Christ and him crucified. We preach the blood of Christ. We preach, we preach his substitutionary atonement for sinners because we are to be a people who are lashed to the cross, looking to the cross and letting that humble our pride. Third, grow in humility by looking to Christ's exaltation. Grow in humility by looking to Christ's exaltation. We see that in verses 9 through 11. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now again, remember where Paul was writing to originally. He's writing to the church at Philippi where, where Caesar is worshiped as Lord. But when these early Christians were baptized, they would, stand, they would stand there in the baptistry before they were baptized and they would say the words, Jesus is Lord, which means ultimately Caesar is not. And they were persecuted for that. But one day, Paul says, Christ is going to return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for many, it will be too late because if you did not confess him as your Lord during this life, it will be too late when you die and stand before him or when he returns, whichever comes first. If you did not confess Christ as your Lord, during your life, 
it is going to be too late. You will be confessing him as Lord, but you will be confessing him as your judge, not your savior. Confess Christ as your savior and Lord now. Now, today, while there is opportunity, so that when you go to be with him or when he comes, you will be ready and you will be, you will be gladly in the greatest moment of your life confessing him as the Lord that you love and not the one who is coming in, in, in judgment because you didn't know him. Turn to Christ and trust him today. Confess him as your Savior and Lord today that you will be ready when that moment comes. And listen, as believers, we can grow in humility by looking to not only to Christ's incarnation and to his crucifixion, but also to his exaltation. I've been reading the book of Revelation recently in my quiet time, and, and just I'm blown away just by the exalted Christ. Christ exalted, triumphant. And, and, and when we look at his exaltation, we look to him in humble adoration. And so we can grow in humility by looking to his exaltation as well as we see in verses 9 through 11. So be humble. That's the second principle of, of, of walking in unity. Here's a third one. Shine like stars. Shine like stars. We see it in verses 14 through 16. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. He says as believers, we are to be like stars that are shining out against the, the, dark, the darkness of, of, of night. And listen, the culture that we're living in today is incredibly dark. It's a dark world spiritually. In this dark world, we have the opportunity to shine out, to stand out, to shine out like stars against the darkness of this darkness that we're living in in our culture. And we can do that. We can shine like stars by not doing some things and by doing something. First of all, we can shine like stars by not Grumbling. What does he say in verse 14? Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars. So in other words, in order to shine for Christ, there's some things that you need to avoid. Some things to not do. And, and first of all, by not Grumbling, the word could also be translated as complaining. Tony Morita says, says this, the question is not will you be tempted to complain. You will be tempted to complain since complaining is the common language of our culture. We live in a world filled with complainers. When you are tempted, what will you do? Will you downplay this verse or will you remember this verse? We're always tempted to complain or uh, grumble. But what does he say here again? Look at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling. You know what everything means? Everything. 
Do everything without grumbling or what? Arguing, arguing. What's, go- what's going on in the background of the church of Philippi? You got people who are arguing with one another and, and, they're, and they're, they're damaging the witness. They're damaging the witness of that church. And Paul is gonna tell them in chapter four, you get this together. Your witness is on the line. And, and then in verse 16, he tells us something that we're to do to shine like stars. What? By holding firm to the word of life. You could also, that word also could be translated as like hold forth, right? Hold firm to the word of life, that's the gospel. Hold firm to it and hold it forth to others, right? And, and so instead of being a people who are known about, to, to, known, known as to complaining, be people who are proclaiming right? The gospel, holding the gospel firm, holding it forth to a lost world, shining like stars forth uh, in, in, uh, in, 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 in walking, in walking in unity. He says, be glad and rejoice. Be glad and rejoice. Verses 17 and 18. But, it, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I mean, here is Paul in prison as he writes Philippians. Why is he in prison? It's because of the sacrifice that he's made for the gospel. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, like a sacrificial offering. But is he complaining grumbling no no he's filled with joy as he writes philippians because he knows that reality for him is just as we saw last week as he says in chapter 1 and verse 21 for me to live is christ and to die is gain to live is christ we have christ here right we have a savior a risen Savior who has defeated death in our place. We have, a, we have a risen Savior who is causing all things in our lives to work together for good, who has got us right in the palm of, our, of his hands, right? Who's, who's in charge of everything in our lives, making all things work together for good, right? To live as Christ and to die as gain. We're, we've got glory that is waiting for us, right? Whether we pass away and go to him or whether he comes for us, whichever day comes first, right? To, we have got, we, we've got the glory of eternity which is not far away, not far away for any of us. We've got this incredible inheritance of glory that is right around the corner. I'll never forget hearing uh, John Piper uh, give this illustration um, that John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, uh, once, once gave about a man who was going to New York to take, take possession of a large inheritance. Listen to this. Newton said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. You're complaining about your carriage, you're a mile away from this incredible inheritance. What are you complaining about? Tony Marita says this, 
of John Newton's words. We must remember that we only have a mile to go. Soon we will see Christ. We don't deserve such an inheritance. So if we have to walk a mile, we can do it with a song. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you so much for the good news of the gospel uh, that you have brought to us. Lord, help us to, to, to live our lives with a joy in, in us that transcends circumstances. Just knowing who Jesus is, knowing who Jesus is for us as our Savior and, and Lord, knowing the glory that is right around the corner that is awaiting your children. Lord, help us to be faithful, to hold, to hold firm to the word of life and to hold that word of life, that good news of the gospel, forth in a world that so desperately needs to know of, of Christ. And right now, as we just continue to pray, listen, we talked about the fact that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know Christ as your Lord today? This is something for you to settle now. Turn to Christ and trust him today. Right, right where you are, call out to him. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call to him right now. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins, that you rose from the dead. And right now, I turn to you and trust you as my Savior, my Lord, my King. The Bible tells us that when we do that, that is, that is to be confessed openly. And, and, and if you have not been baptized as a, a follower of Christ, then part of obedience to him as your Savior and Lord is to, is to be baptized as a, as a believer where you will make that open confession that Jesus Christ is, is Lord. Listen, if you're here today and you need to talk to me or one of our pastors about that, we would love to do that. In just a moment as we sing, or you can talk to us after the service, whenever, we are here for you. But listen, this is not something to put off. If you're uncertain about whether you know Jesus Christ, that's, something that needs, that's, a, that's a stake that needs to be nailed down in your life. And we would love to help you to do that. If you're here today and there's a need in your life for prayer, we'd love to, to pray with you. Our altar is open for you to come and, and pray. We're here at the front to pray, for, pray with you and for you. Let God have his way in your heart as we stand together and sing. Jesus paid it all. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray.
You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 